Um, well, y'all welcome. My name is Simon Stokes. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you at some point. Um, and whoa. And I'm the, uh, the RUF campus minister here at UNC. And if you don't know, uh, this is your first time with us, uh, RUF is a place for Christians, a place for people who are not yet Christians, a place who are really skeptical, uh, people who are really skeptical, a place for people who are really tired um, and need a, a place to rest in community. Um, but this is a community that doesn't exist for itself, but exists to love UNC and love the people um, that are kind of around it and in it. Um, and anything that we can do to help you feel comfortable or to help you connect um, through community groups or through large group or through just getting together, um, we would love to do that. Um, so that's kind of who we are. All right, let's dive in. Um, so I know that I've used this illustration before, uh, but I don't think most of you have heard it yet, so we're going to use it again. Uh, <laughs> but I saw a documentary a few years ago called Inside North Korea, and it was about uh, a doctor who goes to North Korea with the intent of doing a thousand cataract surgeries in 10 days. Like, pretty impressive feat, right? So, 100 surgeries a day for 10 days. He gets there, and he busts it. Like, he gets up very, very early in the morning. He works all through the day, late into the night, day after day after day. And he, he does his, the thing that he came to do. He does a thousand cataract surgeries in these 10 days. And so, you get to the end of this documentary... And he gets all the patients who are doing, who got their cataract surgery done into this kind of large banquet hall with these big double doors in the back, and they're sitting on these benches facing the front. And on the, the very front, there's this kind of dais with these two portraits looking out over the crowd of people. And the portraits are of Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un, the two former dictators of North Korea. And the doctor starts to go from patient to patient to patient very carefully, very gently, very gingerly unwrapping the bandage and the gauze from around their eyes. And for some of these people, they haven't seen in literally decades. And an amazing thing happens, that each person, as he kind of unwraps the bandage, checks their eye, they realize they can see, brushes past the doctor, who is literally just bent over backwards to heal this person, and runs up to the front of the room and starts to jump up and down and say, thank you, great general, thank you, great general, for restoring my sight, for helping me to see again. And one of the most poignant one of these was a young woman, probably in her 30s, who's there, and he undoes the gauze, undoes the bandages, checks her eyes. She runs up to the front. She says, thank you, great general, thank you, great general, for restoring my sight, for letting me see again. Now I'll work harder for you in the salt mines to get more salt for you so that you'll be happier with me. And I tell that story because the real question that's central to the Gospels, the real question we're trying to ask ourselves as we've gone through encountering Jesus this semester, is what is God like when you actually see him? How is he? How does he treat us? Is he kind and gracious, able to heal body and soul? Or is he like this dictator that's just going to send you to the salt mines? Martin Luther, the reformer, said that all of our thinking about how we see God and how we see ourselves needs to be done in the light of the cross. Because our tendency is to naturally think that God is just like us. That he thinks like I would think, that he feels about things the way that I feel, that he's just like me but kind of, you know, like on cosmic steroids or something like that. But if you really want to know who God is, then you've got to deal with the cross then you've got to deal with how Jesus sees the cross because there you see God clear, most clearly as who he is and what he's like. So tonight I have two questions. 
I have just two questions. It's this. What does the cross show us about how God thinks about sin? And what does the cross show us about how God deals with sinners? What does the cross show us about how God thinks about sin? What does it show us about how God deals with sinners? So let's go into this. What does the cross show us about how God thinks about sin? Starting here. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him, the criminals, one on his left and one on his uh, right. This is a grim scene. They're leading him to a place called the skull. They're crucifying him. There's these criminals surrounding him. When you think about what is the hardest thing in our culture for people who aren't that familiar with Christianity to deal with, what would you say? Like, is it suffering? Is it there's one religion kind of being the way to know God? Is it kind of the false dichotomy between science and religion? If you or I could hop into a time machine and go back to the ancient world, what would you see, though? How, what were ancients struggling with? You would see that the cross was the hardest thing for people to get their heads around. Uh, a guy named Martin Hengel, who's a, a pretty big scholar, he wrote the book on crucifixion in the ancient world, says that to the ancients, to believe that the one preexistent son of the one true God, the mediator of creation, the redeemer of the world, had appeared in very recent times in the out-of-the-way out Galilee as a member of the obscure people of the Jews, and even worse, had died the death of a common criminal on the cross, could only be regarded as a sign of madness. Be like, you know, if you approach someone here at UNC and said, you know what? I found dragons in the tunnels underneath the school. Like, that, we just don't have categories. It just is not in the realm of belief, right? Uh, Hangel goes on. He says, The real gods of Greece and Rome could be distinguished from mortal men by the very fact that they were immortal and had absolutely nothing in common with the cross as a sign of shame. So the real gods are people who, you know, don't die, and they're definitely not people who die on a cross, and the idea that there was a God back in the day it was not hard for people to swallow. The idea that God would become a human, that was a little tougher, but there were some stories out there where you could kind of have some mental space for that. But the story that God would die on a cross was ghastly to people. Like, he doesn't fight. Jesus led away with two criminals. He allows this to happen to him. I mean, just think about how outrageous that sounds to people who didn't grow up around it. The Roman philosopher and statesman Seneca once wrote a friend saying, Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, to a cross, long sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly welts on his shoulders and chest, and drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony? The Gospels have said from day one, Yeah, I know a guy, and he's God. Just look at the people in this passage and what they're saying to Jesus. He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, if he's so special, he should get off the cross. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. For everybody, the idea that God would become a human being and die on a cross was the most ridiculous thing ever. Why is that here then? Like This is a central part of the story, right? Why is the cross here? How is this God's plan A? If you and I are to believe what the Bible says is true, and to understand how Jesus considers his work and the purpose of his life, then we have to understand the concept of sin. That there is this ethical power at work in the world that is not supposed to be here. It's not supposed to be part of your life or part of the world, and yet it is. And the Bible says that it's like a stain or a disease or a deformity 
that warps God's good creation and warps us especially. And then warping us, it leads us to desire warped things, to do wrong, which as we you know, collude with sin and with evil things, leads to God's judgment on that evil. And this sin is in big stuff like murder, adultery, theft, whatever. But it also comes out in little things too. Like our motivations for why we succeed, our despair when we fail, our thoughts, our feelings, our dreams, our fears, the way that we date or don't date, the way that we are super ambitious or really chill, why we party or why we don't party, why we sleep with people or don't sleep with people. That There are lots of things that kind of restrain this badness at times, fear of consequences for what might happen, being relatively wealthy and healthy instead of poor and desperate. But whatever we do, it comes out in some way. Um, have you ever heard of the term hangry? Do you know this term? Uh, Tina Fey from SNL and 30 Rock, she coined it, I think, a few years ago. And the term took off because everyone immediately knew exactly what she was talking about. Like, hangry, hungry anger, right? Like, when I'm hangry, like, I, it is so easy for me to lash out at people, to say something I didn't mean to say, and yet there it is. I mean, think about this in your life. I mean, think about why this latched into our culture so quickly. Because it was already there. And you can say, well, when I was hangry, that, I really didn't mean to say that stuff. That really wasn't me. But it really asked the question of, like, well, then who was it? Like, when your guard was down and that hanger <laughs> got you, and you're not even, like, starving, starving. You're just, like, hungry, angry. It raises the question of, like, what's the real me then? Like, is the real me the one that's able to kind of present this persona to the people around me? But that is so easily fractured by petty frustrations when I'm, like, mildly hungry? Or is the real me the person that lives below that restraint and sometimes they just kind of slip out on accident? I mean, take this from someone who's been dealing with sin for a while, that the deeper you look into yourself, the uglier it can get. And the more you have to deal with the fact that it's not just that, you know, I've been wounded in the past and I act out of those wounds, or I'm immature and I don't know, and I just need to grow in some sort of character way. But there is a part of us, I mean, me especially, that loves to do wrong. And you can try to restrain that, but somehow it always comes out. Because if the cross is this ultimate revelation of God, then what does it show us about ourselves? It shows our powerlessness to save ourselves from sin. I mean, just think, humanly speaking, why Jesus dies on the cross. That it comes not because, you know, Jesus is so nice and people hate nice people, right? People love nice people. Or he's so revolutionary about the way that he's loving the folks around him. Like, no, like, he's taking what the Old Testament says and he's saying, it's all pointing to me. And, you know, if you really want to know God you should and follow him, you should just, you know, do unto others what you would have others do unto you. Like, that's not something that is specifically original to Jesus. Like, that's in lots of different cultures and places. But people got mad at him, not just because he was loving, because he said that everything in the Bible points to him. And he loved people in a way that was so pure and good that exposed how selfish and petty our sin makes us. That the light came into the world and exposed our darkness. That his use of power reveals our abuse of it. His wisdom shows our foolishness. His love reveals our prejudice and hatred. His coming to save proves our need and inability. And people hated that then, and they still kind of hate it now. At the cross, we see not only God's goodness, but our depravity as well.
that in the Romans, who were like the best, they were the model for good government in the back in the day, which they're, they're not great, but they were the best that humans had to offer. They fail and they sign Jesus' death warrant. That in the Pharisees, the best model of religion, where like people knew a ton about the Bible and they prayed and they tried to be devout, they fail and they rebel against the ultimate revelation of God. Why? Because sin's power lies in its ability to infect like a disease and to take whatever we have and to corrupt it so that that becomes part of a problem. Or it's like this fire that burns us up inside and it leaves ash. It changes and transforms. And it's like if there's this fire raging in you and you're just throwing stuff at it and whatever you throw at it doesn't actually put the fire out, it actually consumes it and makes it a part of the fire itself. Um, I grew up in South Alabama. Um, which is a little bit more rural than this, but parts of North Carolina feel like the place where I grew up. And growing up, we had uh, a bunch of farmland out there, and every year we would do this control burn on the farmland, and like control burn, it's a loose term. Uh, But basically, the idea would be that, you know, there's a lot of pine straw down there, there's a lot of like old limbs and tree tree things that need to get burned and taken out. And uh, when you would burn this stuff, it would leave space for new green things to come. And so every year we would kind of do this. And one year we go and we're going to do this thing and we've put all the precautions in place. There's apparently a lot of pine straw on the ground. And we start the fire going. And, you know, this is, we've done this like five or six times. We know what we're doing, we think. And literally within like 15 minutes, like the fire is raging out of control. I mean, raging. And so to the point where, like, imagine, like, trees a hundred yards in that direction as tall as this ceiling if not a little bit taller and all of them are engulfed in fire and i'm standing like here and it's literally just about as wide from this thing to like the mic stand just wide enough to drive a four-wheeler through and i'm fighting the fire back with get this a pine bough that we had cut to like stop the fire and so like (laughs) in front of me are literally pine trees that are on fire and behind me, I'm trying to stop the fire from getting into more pine trees. And I'm just, I'm 12, and I'm like beating this fire. <laughs> so like, that. <laughs> I'm like beating this fire with these, this pine bough. And suddenly I hear behind me like the crackle of flame. And I'm like, what? And I look at my pine bough, and I realize at that moment how bad of an idea it is when the trees that you're trying to burn in front of you are made of the same thing that you're trying to fight the fire with. <laughs> and so I look at the pine bell and it's on fire. And what I've done really is like beat the fire and catch it on fire and then throw it back behind me. <laughs> and, so, and so what I have to do is I have to run like 100 yards but like out of there because flame immediately goes up on both sides and it's like an oven. Uh, it is the closest I've ever come that I know of to dying. Um, and, I mean, a volunteer fire department had to come, and they, they since then, will camp out in front of our land any time we start a fire. Uh, it's good fun for them. Um, <laughs> but do you see the, the foolishness of trying to take something that's already flammable to put out a fire? Like, it's the very thing that you that you cannot stop, and yet it's this thing that like, you're using to try and stop it. That to deal with sin, to deal with the cross, and with the God of the cross, means that we have to deal with this blaze of sin in our lives, and our inability to put it out. That we cannot stop sin. 
So what does this show us about how God deals with sinners? That God's answer is this. It's this inherent, that God's answer to this inherent burning corruption in people is to become this incorruptible person and to do for people what they themselves cannot do, which is to put out the, the fire of sin in the world and to pay the penalty of that sin and give us life. Just look here at the criminal who believes. He says, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he goes on saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This guy, this robber, believes two things. He believes that Jesus is innocent and that Jesus has the power to save. This guy's plea is not grounded in good works. It's not even grounded in any full or complete knowledge of Jesus. Like, he doesn't know that much about the guy. There's no moral reform that could happen. There's no good work that he could do later. This guy's nailed to the cross. On the one hand, his faith is incredibly weak because there's not much that he seems to know, right? Like, there's a guy here on the cross, and I think he can save me. Yet, and get this, it is incredibly strong too because this guy's faith is entirely in Jesus. Some people saw Jesus raise folks from the dead, and they did not believe. This robber sees him being put to death And he has faith to believe. The other criminal is arguing for more information. Like, if you come down, then I'll believe you. For him and the rest of the people gathered around Jesus who are mocking him, he's got to come down from the cross in order to save. Show us how powerful you are and then we'll believe in you. But the irony here is, is that Jesus has to remain on the cross in order to do the thing they're asking him to do. To save them. That as his hands and feet are nailed to the wood, as his blood starts to pour as a sacrifice for these people, his priestly work begins to. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Sometimes when Christians are talking to a friend who's an atheist or really skeptical or they're wrestling with their own doubts, you know, we can think to ourselves, I wish that I had this slam dunk, airtight, bulletproof argument for God and for Jesus. But the reality is that God didn't give us an argument. That he gave us a person. That the whole point of the Gospels is that you can't actually know God as he actually is and do some sort of end run around Jesus. That he is the way that we actually know God. Do you know the term paradox? Do you know what that word means? It's where two things that seem like they shouldn't go together actually do go together and are true. Think about it like this. It's like when you're working really hard on like a paper or a project or trying to do reading, and you're not really getting to where you want to be. So you take a step back from the work, you put it on a back burner, you leave it for a while, and then you come back after like dinner or hang out with some friends, and you come back and you find that the work just kind of takes care of itself. Have you ever had that experience? The paradox there is that by working less, you actually got more work done. Tell yourself that the next time you're doing this. Um, <laughs> Jesus' whole life is a paradox. That he is so nice and inclusive. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's for everybody. And yet he's so exclusive. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He hates sin more than you can imagine. He hates it so much that he will bleed to be done with it. But he is more welcoming of sinners than you and I can imagine. I mean, he's praying for his enemies here as they nail him to a tree. He's inviting this guy who's a robber, who's done terrible things, into his kingdom. That Jesus, in all his paradoxes, is how we know God in his complexity. 
That the cross is God stripping away everything to show us himself as he actually is. That the cross is the wrath of God and the love of God. It's the justice of God and the compassion of God. It's God's transcendent powers. He does something on a cosmic scale. And it's his close presence with us in weakness and sin. The cross is God's absolute, terrifyingly serious hatred of sin. And his absolute, terrifyingly serious love of sinners. That on the cross, the one person who knew nothing of what it was like to be a sinner is treated exactly like he was one. That Jesus is treated like the worst adulterer, the worst murderer, the worst thief, the worst liar, and yet he's holy. Why? So that people who are actually murderers and adulterers and liars and thieves can be made holy. To look at Jesus and say, my hope before God and other people is to be with you. Just to be with you and to be right with you. That is the, what it is to be simultaneously right with God and sinful. This is what it's like to live in the paradox of the cross. And this really has applications for two types of people. Those of you who don't yet know Jesus, and those of you who do know Jesus. Ask yourself, what is it to be a saint? Like, what does it mean to be a truly holy person, a righteous person? Is it someone who give, who's given their all and done great things for God? Is it the answer to failing is just to stop failing? Or is a saint someone for whom God has done great things? I mean, take the sin that always runs to the front of your mind when you're praying in your car, or when you wake up early in the morning, like before the sun is up and it's just churning in your head, or you're walking to class, or you're waking up the next day with a headache. Take that sin and think about what you pray in that. Like, God, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm serious, not anymore. And then you do it again. What's the answer to that? is the answer to failing to stop failing. The answer to failure is to turn to God. The answer to being like the apostles, who had all the information and all the experiences and ran away from Jesus, is not to stop failing, that would be nice. The answer is to turn to God and to say, have mercy on me again. Does it matter if we obey or not? Like, absolutely, we should. We should have changed lives. But where do changed lives come from? From God's mercy. From experience that over and over and over again. Like how do you become patient? How do you become kind? By watching God's patience and kindness to you. Or if you're arrogant and you're proud and you live your life staying on a pedestal and that's lonely because you're distant from people but there's a sense of superiority that you like that comes with standing above the people around you. Like how do you become humble? Like what's your hope in that? It's watching the humility of God on the cross pour out his life and pray for you. That he is so God that he is not beholden to power and glory as though those are things he had to serve. But he lays those things down and he allows himself to be crushed for you. I mean, the reality is that we are so bad and so helpless for God that he had to die. He had to do this cosmic thing and that is the most humbling thing ever. But the reality is that he did it on our behalf, and that's the most hopeful and life-giving thing ever. And y'all, that is a shock absorber for our success and our failures. For our shopping addiction, for our porn habit, for our substance abuse, for our lying, for our eating disorder, for loving grades more than God, for loving cheap beer and dance parties more than God. Like, I don't say this lightly, but maybe you're here and you had an abortion.
Maybe you're here and you caused an abortion. Whatever it is, couldn't the thief put his arm around you and say, don't I have good news for you? By every standard of the day, I deserved public execution. And he did not. And people gave up on me. My family gave up on me. And the state gave up on me. I gave up on me. But he did not. And he took the worst day of my life. And he used it for good. And his mercy and his prayers and his affection, that's for people like us. Like, couldn't he say that to you? Do you know what that is? That is not a good story. That's not a good myth. It is good history. That is good news. In a world where so much news and so much history is bad, and we get used to receiving that and hearing that and being disappointed by that, this is different. This is good news. One of the guys who was there at the crucifixion, John, wrote a letter later, and he said, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When John wrote that and he stood at the cross and he thought back on those things and he thought back on what Jesus had done for him, do you think that John meant some of our sins or all of our sins? He meant some of them. That if God can say to a robber on a cross who was put there justly and he can do nothing for Jesus and nothing for God, then why can't he do that for you? Where that is the millionth time you said that to him, forgive me, have mercy on me. Or where that is the first time that you said that to him, he can and he will do that. That's what we see about God here on the cross, right? And so I want to end with this. I heard this story recently about a pastor named John MacArthur out in California. And John got a call from a mutual friend who knew their high school football coach. And John, back in high school, had been a Christian, and he tried to share the gospel with this coach. But the guy was single. He loved the ladies. And he was like, you know, John, good for you about the Jesus thing, but I'm all right. Like, he loved John, but he loved lots of other stuff too. And then, like, 50 years later, John gets this call from this mutual friend, and he says, our coach is dying. And so John MacArthur, this pastor, he goes up to the hospital, and he goes, and he hears the nurse say as he steps into the room that, you know, the coach hasn't set up, he hasn't spoken, he hasn't even opened his eyes in three days. And John goes over to his coach and he sits down next to him and he says, Hey coach, it's Johnny Mack, which is what he used to go by in high school. And the guy's eyes opened and he looked at him and John MacArthur's apparently a pretty straightforward guy. said to him, Coach, you are the thief on the cross and this is the absolute 11th hour. You need to turn to Jesus and embrace him now. And he did. And you know, of course, in those moments you can wonder, does he just love me and kind of like want me to kind of be eased in my mind about some of these things? So MacArthur goes back a few days later, and the coach has actually improved. He's sitting up in bed, and he's got this clipboard. And MacArthur said, you know, I've known this guy for 50 years. He's never not had a clipboard. <laughs> and so he's in the hospital. He's got this clipboard still. And it has the letters on the, of the alphabet on it because this coach has got a trach in and he can't talk. And MacArthur comes over to him, and the guy spells out, what can I do for our Lord Jesus? And MacArthur says to him, and this is really good pastoral wisdom, maybe I'll learn this one day. He says, Coach, this isn't really the time when you're going to do a lot for him. This is when you need him to do for you. And you know what? 
That sounds so easy. I found that to be incredibly hard. Here's what you need to do right now. For the not yet a Christian and for the Christian. Here's what you need to understand right now. And this is the easiest thing to understand until you try to do it. When it is the hardest thing ever. And it is obviously an act of God's grace in your life if it happens. But everyone here needs to understand that your great contribution to God is your sin. And he's going to take care of everything else. And you need to come with open hands and say, thank you for sending a Savior like Jesus. Have mercy on me. Thank you for loving me, for hearing my prayers, for caring about my joy and my fears and my sadness. Love me because of who you are, not because of who I am. What is a saint? Is a saint someone who's done great things for God? Saints are people for whom God has done great things. All a saint does is receive Jesus' work for them. And if you're not a saint today, you can become one. All you have to do is contribute the sin and turn to him and he will do the rest. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Spirit, uh, we pray that you'd enlarge our hearts. You to warm our affections to supply us what we need to see and rest in the work of Jesus on our behalf. Help us to see his work on the cross. Help us see that he was crushed, that we'd be lifted up, that he was struck down, that we would live, that he entered darkness, that we would know light. Lord, that he died, that we would have life. God, that he received a wrath, that we would have welcome. Help us to live in that, to rest in that, to hope in that, to turn to him and give him our sin that we would receive him as our Lord, as our Savior, as our friend and our brother. In his name we pray. Amen.